Hello and welcome to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. In this second season of the show, host Jordan Guth is joined by a new guest each episode who knows something about hi-fi that Jordan doesn't. And who knows, while he's learning about all of this, you might learn something too. So with no further ado, here's Jordan and this week's guest. Welcome back to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. Today we are joined with James Hale, who has decades of experience as a broadcaster, music journalist, uh, speechwriter. Um, James is the author of the popular art and tech feature on Soundstage Experience, uh, which is why we're having him on today. So welcome, James. Hey, Jordan. Nice to be here. Nice to join you. Thank you. Um, so I have seen this art and tech column before, and it was uh, an interesting um perspective on looking at hi-fi through the lens of the art that makes it how did this column come about how did uh how did you conceive this idea oh well i wish i could take full credit for it but it was it was kind of uh, a number of conversations with doug schneider um he approached me he was sort of looking for a, you know, a different way to approach um the technology that we review every month and you know i'd been writing about music and he said you know is, is there a different way to do this and through just a, like a series of conversations i you know i started coming around to the idea that obviously not everybody listens to music uh through the same technology the same way or the same way every time they do listen to the same piece of music so that you know that the, the two are inseparable so maybe we should approach it that way and you know the sort of traditional way of reviewing technology, you know, stereophonic technology is to, is to review the gear and then sample, you know, some recordings that you know really well and that you can have a baseline to judge that against. That's kind of the traditional way. And so we sort of decided through these conversations to kind of turn that on its head. So probably 90% of the time I'm coming at it from the music perspective. I've got like a you know, a new recording or, you know, a high-end vinyl release of something I know really well. And, you know, what can we match this with? And a remarkable number of times the match is, is pretty good, you know, so that that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, sometimes it's a bit of a, a stretch. But again, we're working on that basis that this is a new piece of technology. We want to test it out against some kind of baseline. The baseline is, you know, either this, this music you've heard somewhere, somewhere else, sometime else, a different format, perhaps. And you're exploring the two things together because, you know, from my experience in all the different aspects of music I've worked in, you're never going to hear the same piece of music twice through, you know, exactly the same way and, and often not through the same kind of gear whatsoever. So yeah, I think it's only fair to, to bring those two things together. No, when, when I kind of, I read through a, a few of the articles and what I took away from that was this idea that it, the article seemed to be about how the tech serves the music, not about how the music serves the tech. It's not about like, well, this recording sounds really good on this particular amp uh, and this particular amp has these specs or an X, Y, Z. Um, it's really about the music primarily and then the tech kind of how it fulfills its role in presenting the, the music the best it can. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's exactly right. And then we sort of take it one step further as well. The idea, you know, of, uh, that we settled on was really to combine the musical product 
for lack of a better term, with the physical product, you know, and, and explore how incremental changes to your audio system can change the listening experience, you know, and, you know, we all want, you know, ideally as little as possible between us and the artwork that we're exploring. But, you know, it's not always possible. So then I guess we're, we're looking at, well, you know, you spent, you know, another thousand dollars on, on these speakers above the price point your speakers are at now, or if you, you know, you explored this new type of, of, uh, uh, technology in a DAC, how would, how would that make the music sound different? It's not always better. It's just, you know, will it, will it, uh, make the music more transparent? Will it make them listen to the experience more, more transparent? Yeah. It, and it's really interesting. You were talking about if you spent a little bit more, uh, one of the articles that I really related to was the, the Focal Utopia headphones. Right. Um, so I actually got to, um, to listen to those headphones. Doug, uh, lent me a pair. I, it might've actually been the same pair that you eventually got to, to kind of try them out. And my experience with high-end headphones, not very in depth, but those were pretty unreal. Uh, they were pretty spectacular, but then I, I had to come back to this idea when I found out the price point, And I think you mentioned this in your article where it's like, they're amazing. It, there's no denying it. People that have the the kind of cash flowing around are not going to be disappointed. Um, but the, having those headphones doesn't necessarily make um, everything you listen to sound astronomically better than anything else uh, or no. other headphones. No, absolutely not. And, and I don't want to recount the entire uh, entire column. <laughs> you know, yeah. please please have a chance and go go read it, and you can follow the logic along. But I mean, just to use the example of of that Miles Davis recording, it sounded really awful <laughs> through those oh, really? wonder, through those wonderful headphones it, you know i know that recording pretty well and and uh, and by that time i knew the headphones pretty well and i thought man this this doesn't sound like i expected it to at all as soon as i took the headphones off you know the piece of music just came back to what i i thought it would sound like it sounded great in in the room but you know so not every experience is going to be the same and that's i think the point of 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 the column is to, you know, there's that, that term in situ, you know, that we yep. use in, in advertising a lot. I think uh, what we try to do is look at the piece of music that we're exploring and the technology we're exploring in situ. So it's not just a set of, of you know, uh, technology stats and, and performance numbers. It's a human experience. And as I said, readily in that column, you know, I'm, I'm 68, almost 69 years old. I've put my ears through a lot more uh, hard living than a lot of people have working in an FM radio and in loud concerts and things. And I mean, I am just not going to hear everything that a pair of uh, five or $6,000 speakers are going to deliver to to uh someone as young as yourself i'm glad you had a chance to listen to them because i'm sure i'm sure they revealed a lot more to you than they, than they did to me so i know my limitations but by the same token yeah they're a you know they're a fabulous piece of of equipment a great piece of of engineering technology but you know it's like me i was i was overseas last week and i was staying at uh at a relative's house and uh, the fellow next door had a beautiful porsche 
parked right on his front lawn so he could sort of lock it, lock it into his yard at night. And it's a beautiful Porsche, but you know, if you can't take it out on the, on a kind of road that a Porsche is meant to drive on, you know, it's, it's a beautiful piece of equipment, but you're not, you're not experiencing it to the fullest. So that For was sure. my experience with those headphones. It, 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 it made the music sound as good as possible in my head. <laughs> yep. No, that's fair. Now, it, and another interesting kind of takeaway, we were talking the headphones, but it seems like you have a good mix between headphones and, and kind of bookshelf speakers and active speakers and, and tower speakers and the, the whole gamut. Um, do you have a preference in, in how you listen to your music? Um, kind of what, what speaker or, or headphone or XYZ that you would, you would typically use? Uh, if I use my own preference, yeah, it would be my floor standing speakers, you know, through my own system. Uh, I I'll often appreciate it when uh, when the delivery man brings a, uh, a piece of gear that's, uh, you know, a step or, or two above what I'm usually using. But I've reached a point where I, you know, again, going back to my earlier point, I reached I reached, uh, I think, a, a point in my equipment that it matches what I'm capable of hearing 95% of the time. So, yeah. but you know, then again, it's, it's, you know, sometimes you want to hear a piece of music certain ways. There's certain records I want to hear really loud. There's certain records that are really good, you know, in the background, if I'm, if I'm working and then, you know, driving in a car, you know, brings a whole other set of, of circumstances. I just took a couple of transatlantic flights again, <laughs> choose wisely, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know? Uh, so that's just, you know, the, the approach always changes. And it, another thing I wanted to say is it changes for me because as a music journalist, uh, I always keep in mind who my reader or listener is. So, you know, back when I wrote for a daily newspaper, the way I would review music was much different than the way I review music for Downbeat magazine, where you make the assumption that, you know, well, based on our reader stats, probably three quarters of the readers are working musicians. Um, they understand the art form quite well, and they probably have access to at least some equipment that's better than, you know, maybe the average person does. It's not a it's not a, it's not necessarily an audiophile audience, although there might be some crossover. So with with that in mind, would you consider yourself um, a music lover first and a hi-fi enthusiast or an audiophile enthusiast second? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't pretend to to know as much as, you know, <laughs> any, any half dozen of the people that I work with at Soundstage. You know, um, I, I know what I know. I, uh, as a journalist, too, outside of music as well, I wrote about I've written about technology for 40 years, you know, a lot for, for the phone companies and other technology companies. I never pretended to know, um, how the technology worked, but I knew who to go to ask how to explain how the technology works. And, and, uh, you know, my, my career over that number of decades has sort of been based on, I pride myself in being able to explain it to a lay audience. So whether I was working for a phone company and we were just rolling out, you know, what used to be called ISDN, you know, basically the digital network to, to explain to people how it was different, why you were going to have better uh, phone quality and, and the technology would allow you to do lots of different things that we now take for granted with a phone back in 1990, when I was doing this, it wasn't that obvious to people. So you had to, 
step them through the process. Very similar to how you step people through technology and hi-fi. Yeah. Yeah. Me personally, like I have a background in, in tech and the the thing that I always come back to is some people would always say, like, well, I'm too old to learn this or, or X, Y, Z. And my, my personal belief is that anyone can learn anything if you're passionate and you care about it. Absolutely. Yeah. And if, it, not only that, but if you have to use it to, to your advantage, if, if you find that, you know, uh, you're going to be able to hear music better or differently. You want to know how that technology delivers it to you. So even if you don't want to learn as much as, you know, some of the columns in, in, uh, you know, any one of our magazines would go into, it's worthwhile at least knowing that for this amount of money, you're going to probably experience this kind of level of enjoyment, this result, this, uh, yeah, this absolutely. experience. Now, how much do you personally, when you're looking at gear or something like that, how much do you personally look into the measurements of that gear? It doesn't sound like it's kind of a top priority. It sounds like that's a secondary or tertiary type thing for you. Well, I have to say one of the things that, you know, listening to as much gear as we get to listen to at soundstage is that you, you begin to appreciate the fact that, that, you know, the best measurement of what it sounds like is inside your own head. Uh, you know, you, and it's not always a question of, of, of money, you know, you can spend a lot of money and, you know, again, as we talked about those headphones, a lot of the money that goes into the headphones is just the look and feel of them, packaging of them. And, and it's, you know, it's a luxury product. Yeah. Uh, the technology part of it is, is, you know, maybe a third of the actual, you know, price you're paying for, you're paying for a bigger experience. So, you know, with that in mind, you always have to keep, you know, uh, your, your eyes, your ears on, you know, expectations and, and, you know, what you're actually going to, going to get out of something. Yeah. And, um, my understanding is that before, you write your articles, the art and tech articles. Um, typically the, the hardware, the equipment has gone through another author that kind of speaks more towards the, the technical side of things or, or more in depth on the technical side of things. Um, do you ever talk to the authors, uh, of the original pieces to get a, a kind of, um, understanding or an opinion on, on what they think of the product first, or, or do you try and have like a fresh perspective going into it? Um, I try to bring in the fresh perspective for sure. Although that's a really interesting question because I do think I probably reached out, you know, maybe less than half a dozen times, but yeah, occasionally you just, you know, run into things that you think, Oh, that's a head scratcher. I'm, I'm wondering if I'm hearing this right, or I'm, I'm interpreting this right. And as I said, I, you know, I'm lucky to be surrounded by so many people who know way more about any part of this technology than I do. Uh, you know, uh, I do consider myself pretty much a, a layperson when it, when it comes to, uh, you know, actually understanding the difference between this and something else. I mean, I appreciate the, uh, the, the, uh, what goes into the technology and I appreciate the, 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 the numbers that show the, the performance, but, you know, often it's the, it's the different little design quirks that a manufacturer might have that make, make a huge difference. And, and, and these days that does seem to be more and more the case is that it's, it's uh, a question of price point is not, you know, it's not playing as big a role as it used to, um, which I think is an exciting thing for, you know, people who are just coming into buying you know, stereo equipment, whether it be for the first time or they haven't done it in a long time is, understanding that you can get a lot more uh, listening pleasure for a lot less money 
than they used to have to spend. Yeah, the the baseline has um, has come up quite a bit, is my understanding. And speaking to different people, it's like um, you mentioned Doug Schneider earlier. Like talking to Doug, he's like, "Yeah, audio in the the seventies or the eighties was just crap. Like the the crap was really crap. So hi fi was astronomically better." It sounds like nowadays the the baseline for for what's available, even at the the lower price points, is quite high. So really, kind of to your point on those headphones, what you're paying more for is maybe marginal benefits in terms of the the sound reproduction and and the output, and then the experience that you get with them, the design, the other things that kind of um, make a make an, a whole experience for your listening. Yeah. And, you know, and, and we, and we profess to be totally transparent, you know, at, at soundstage. And so I'm going to be totally transparent. When I first bought my stereo, first stereo, first serious stereo, I was making $9,000 Canadian and, uh, you know, straight out of university. And I spent a thousand dollars on, uh, a Sony, uh, receiver. And I spent a thousand dollars on, on a set of, of, uh, of speakers, you know, so it was a big chunk of my income spent on equipment that, you know, then do the, do the math. So, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to blow things out to the average salary, so maybe I just spent, you know, almost 20%. 20% yeah. <laughs> yeah. like $20,000 out of, out of, you know, the average, you know, middle-class salary, you know, for doing what I do. And, and, and that's ri- ridiculous, you know, because huge, if, you, yeah. if, if you did that now, you would have like a, a tremendous experience to spend $2,000 on, on, um, Sony and Bose equipment, which is what I did back in, you know, whatever that was, 1978, <laughs> you know, it's not, it's marginally better than what you hear today for that, for, for that, for $2,000, let alone for $20,000. You know, I mean, you can have that same experience now for the same $2,000, I guess is my point, regardless of inflation and cost creep and everything else over the past 40 years, $2,000 now gets you pretty amazing sound. Yeah, it's the democratization of hi-fi is is very real, it seems like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, and, and the same goes for other types of technology, as we all know. It it it, uh, it doesn't cost as much to buy a large screen television set as it did, you know, 20 years ago either. You know, and phones, you know, everything, everything like that in terms of of. Uh, you know, miniaturization and digitization and, and getting those circuits to perform as well as they possibly can. You know, it's, you know, it's just a standard technology, yeah. the creep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, do you ever run into, um, a, like a technology and music pairing, uh, that just doesn't really live up to your expectations or exceeds them? Like something that is just, you're, you're blown away with how, a particular piece of tech and music uh, kind of come together in that that kind of perfect harmony, or not, <laughs> or the opposite, where you're like, that should have sounded perfect, but <laughs> just wasn't there. I, it, well, it happens a lot. It, it happens a whole lot. Uh, it happened. It, it you know when it doesn't happen, like the the uh, the pairing of of those extraordinarily expensive headphones, and uh, and that Miles Davis recording, which you know, is one of my favorite recordings to hear loud, <laughs> you know, but it was done with old, older technology. Uh, that was a prime example of, of, uh, 
you know, those things just not, not meshing up. But that in itself is, is kind of interesting. You know, if you're interesting in the, the recording process or the, the, you know, the process that gets sound from an instrument to your ears through all those, you know, multiplicity of, of technologies that, and, and avenues that have to be used to do that. If you're interested in that part of it, it's, it's fascinating as well, because even when the music doesn't sound as good as you hoped it would, or think it should, there's kind of a little detective work that goes into figuring out, you know, why you had that experience. It didn't live up to what you, you expected. Um, I think that reveals a lot about the art of recording, you know, over and above the art of performance. I, over the last few uh, podcast episodes, we've talked to some really interesting people, um, music producers and, and mastering uh, mm-hmm. engineers and stuff like that. And it's fascinating the amount that goes into uh, all stages of it, but especially that kind of last stage there. Now, uh, between fully analog and fully digital, do you, do you have a preference? Do you have a, um, a kind of opinion on whether or not um, going to that full digital technology is is still going to maintain the music or, or do you kind of have a soft spot for the analog recordings and the analog process of things? Uh, it really goes back to what I was saying before about, you know, people listening in so many different ways. And in, in my background of, you know, when I was, when I worked in FM radio, you, you always had to be conscious of the range of things, you know, that people might be doing with the radio on, you know, especially if you were a late night show, you know, and that required you to listen to music uh, in a different way. You were listening like sonically and circumstantially, you know, you were, you know, looking at looking at music in different ways in terms of how you experience it, depending on how the, the, the context in which you hear it. So I always think that's, you know, if you can control it for yourself, sure, there are there are some pieces of music that I prefer to listen to on headphones and some that I prefer, you know, as I s- said before, to to blast out, you know, when my wife is out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there was an article that uh, I think it was uh, an amp. Uh, maybe the Rotel amp and you're talking, I think you used uh, Arcade Fire on it. And I, I haven't actually seen an Arcade Fire album before, uh, but it, the, the line on the album was something to the effect of uh, to be played at maximum volume, love Arcade Fire type thing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, you know, which was a nice throwback to, to, to some of the, uh, the albums that came out, especially in the, in the mid to late 60s when producers hadn't necessarily... Um, some of them gotten that gotten their heads around how to record and mix uh very loud electric music i mean it was famously that you know Jimi hendrix you know fumbled you know through a number of of different studios and, and recording engineers before he hit on the magic formula that could really make his guitar sound the way he wanted to on record you know if you if you listen to hey joe and 90 percent of the rest of that debut record i mean it's night and day it's just you know one sounds like music sounded like the day before Jimi hendrix got to a studio and one sounded like music that we've known ever since then interesting that's really cool so with that i think we will take a quick little break here and then when we're back we can jump into kind of more questions um focus more on the artists and and kind of the the recording ideas
right, so we're back from the break, and uh, I think the next thing I, I'm kind of curious about, James, is your perspective on are there any contemporary artists that you kind of look at and and you think are like outstanding in what they do, and they really consider the the full experience of music? Oh yeah, I think there's there's numerous examples. Um, it was interesting. I I, I mentioned that I just. Uh, flew back and forth to uh, visit some relatives in uh, the UK over the last couple of weeks. And one of the books I took with me was a new book by Warren Zanes, you know, who's a, a musician in his own right, but, you know, lately has been better known for his, his work as a, as a music journalist. His new book is called uh, Deliver Me From Nowhere, which is uh, delves deeply into the, the making of Bruce Springsteen's album, Nebraska, which of course broke every rule about how to record a record. You know, he recorded it in his, in his bedroom, uh, uh, on a cassette tape using a, a pretty cheap mixer. Um, and, and then, you know, tried to have some of the best engineers and producers in the music business at the time, turn that into a consumable product. Uh, and everyone failed until they just decided to put it out the way the cassette sounded, which you know, for a lot of people was unlistenable, but turned out to be an amazing piece of listening art because the way it was recorded and the way it sounded was as important as the material. That's that's an extreme example. But as I look back over the, the, the music that I love and the music that uh, uh, I guess, you know, sustains over time and almost always has a very strong sonic fingerprint on it um and it's not always i think what you might assume from that that it's a sonic fingerprint that is you know pristine and beautiful and and really you know uses the technology to its fullest <laughs> you know some of my favorite records are are generally hooker records from 1949 and 1952 that and i will not take credit for th this but I will neither will I remember the name of the critic who said it, that it sounds like it was recorded on a roofing tile using a dull <laughs> nail. You know, th this is this is rudimentary recording techniques, but it, it, it delivers the power of one man, an electric guitar and stomping his foot with a voice like John Lee Hooker's or 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 the, the albums that Howlin' Wolf made on chess records in the early 50s. The power of those raw electric instruments coming through, you know, probably very good by today's standards microphones, which which were the, the standard of the of the day, but a very rudimentary recording system at Chess Records. You know, the same could be said of of Elvis's early records, uh, you know, when he made them on the street in Memphis. You know, you can't you can't separate the art from the technology in those records because the technology is part of the power, you know, it's part of the, it's part of the art, <laughs> you know, because the art is the whole package. The art is not just, you know, Elvis Presley's song as he sang it, as it came out of his mouth in the studio. That's, that's in the moment. The art lives forever and the technology influenced the art. That's fascinating. It, yeah. I think the word that comes to mind is it's an authentic representation of where they were at that point in time. Yeah. Again, I'm, and I'm, I'm going to, 
you know, unfortunately not give credit where credit is due because it's not on the tip of my of my tongue. But there's someone who um, uh, went around a few years ago with uh, a rebuilt uh, recording machine that would have been used typically in field recordings in the in the 20s or 30s and and recorded a lot of, quote unquote, roots artists, probably the obviously the best known was Roseanne Cash and, and her husband just in their, their apartment in New York city. Uh, if you can, and uh, as again, I'm not calling to, 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 to mind the name of it, but, uh, uh, if you're interested in that kind of thing, Google it because it's, it's uh, worthwhile hearing because it's a reminder of, of, you know, how much we kind of came to rely on modern technology. And sometimes it's very rudimentary technology. That is the, the, the shortest line between the musician and your ear and your heart. <laughs> One artist that comes to mind with that, um, that kind of, uh, in situ their, their recording and mm -hmm. what really matters is their voice and the instruments and all that. I think it was, um, uh, St. Vincent, uh, on, I think it was mass education. The, the song was played to me in, uh, in Montreal, uh, by the folks at Sim audio. And it was, absolutely incredible like uh this this woman's voice was just unbelievable and you kind of go over this and and basically the the backstory is she she recorded everything in her apartment with her own equipment and then just put it out and you're like wow like this is and i believe that's the story i could be getting it wrong but i, I believe that's the story um it just reminded me of that kind of authentic representation of of emotion and, and music and, and voice uh, without getting too much of the technology uh, mixed in there. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and that's really at the core, although I don't think we started out that way because it was prior to COVID really at the core of it is how those, those two things come together, how the, how the music and the recording of the music and then how you reproduce the music, how, I guess it's really three things, how those three things come together inside your head. Um, you know, and there's some, a lot of people during COVID tried some very interesting things. Um, I, uh, I am currently writing a book with the, the trumpeter and composer, Dave Douglas. And, uh, you know, Dave was one of a number of people who did uh, completely remote recordings during COVID so that, you know, he, he sent, you know, his raw uh, tape improvisation plus the song form to a drummer, Joey Barron, who then improvised around that, who then passed it on to the bass player, then passed it on to the keyboard. So, and, and, and Dave is not by any means the only person who, who, uh, uh, led his artistry to come up with creative ways to work around the situation that we all had to live through for three years when, when we couldn't travel and get together and be in the same room. But it's, it's just another example of, of, of putting the technology to, to work. And then again, I always turn the thing around and it's the same as, you know, Robert Johnson, the blues player sitting in a hotel room or sitting in a, uh, an, a, a, a disused pool hall, you know, to make a recording and, and being so uh, introverted about sharing his music with anybody that he, that he played facing the wall. So no one could steal his guitar licks, you know, on a single <laughs> microphone. And that, that music is, is still the, some of the most powerful music, some of the most powerful art of any type ever captured. It, it, the technology is, is a tool. Yeah. And that, it's kind of fascinating. I, I never really thought about that during COVID. It seems like COVID probably changed the way a lot of people recorded their music, especially artists that weren't necessarily, let's say, uh, mainstream artists that that may not have been able to 
still get around the COVID restrictions and go into a major studio. But those those kind of artists that are artists first primarily and then maybe superstars second. But like, that's fascinating. I never really considered that. And I, I don't want to dismiss or underplay the uh, the significance because it, it hurt. It hurt yeah. almost every musician I know in one degree or another. I don't want to underplay that. But it is very interesting to consider that if a, a worldwide pandemic had occurred even 20 years ago, let alone 30 or 40 years ago, the arts would have shut down. You know, we, we would not have any... Um, uh, very little anyway, uh, co- collaborative art produced for a three-year period. Uh, at least the technologies that we have today allowed it to continue. And uh, again, I, I don't uh, denigrate, you know, the, the, the economic and artistic losses that, that people suffered, you know, during this time, but, but at least there was an avenue. So it's interesting to look at how technology has, does allow us to overcome uh, things like, you know, like a, a pandemic like that. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. It, it's this idea that artists will endure and adapt. And uh, I mean, we just happen to be at a place right now where technology allows them to do that. Yeah, it allow, allows them to do it uh, collectively with other people. Yeah, and, and allows them to, to still get it heard. So that's, that's another kind of interesting thought. Um, nowadays, there's a lot of people that are going back to older technologies. So a lot of uh, artists that are going back and saying, yes, I'm going to uh, make a CD, even though streaming is kind of a thing, and, or they'll make even records, which is really cool. Uh, cassettes are having a resurgence right now as well, which is fascinating <laughs> to me. I'm sorry. I don't understand that one. Sorry. I, I, yeah, I, yeah, look, th- look, if eight tracks come back, I'm out of here. <laughs> oh, a tracks are interesting because I I just read it was actually uh, Lear Jets, I believe, uh, partly funded a tracks as a way to to get music on their their private aircrafts, which I thought was really neat. It's quite possible. I mean, I always think back. There's a I'm sure everybody has seen it. There's a great picture of of uh, Muhammad Ali sitting in in uh, his Lincoln Continental, which has a, uh, a 45 RPM disc player in it. Yeah, you know. it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. But, so, and then just thinking about this, like, where do you see uh, artists going? Like, is is this kind of um, going back to these, these older mediums, is that just a way to give themselves a unique sound uh, to kind of compensate for something that might not be there in their, in their actual artistry? Um, or like, why, why are people going back? Why are people uh, not kind of just embracing today's technology and just living with it? Oh, I think there's as many explanations for that as there are, you know, pieces of pieces of art being made. Uh, you know, so I, I can I can think of any number just in 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 projects that have you know come to my hands in the last little while. It might be you know people just wanting to break down the walls of traditional studios. It might be economic reasons. It might be you know you have a particular piece of gear and you just love the way it sounds. You know, uh, you know it might just be you found a guitar that that just sounds like you have never been able to make a guitar sound in the studio and you just want to figure out how to do that 
you know, in your living room, or it might be just messing around like, like Keith Richards, when, when he recorded those guitar tracks, uh, on sticky fingers by just jacking right into a, a little tape recorder and just overfeeding that head so much that it just is, is just magical distortion that you couldn't get any other way. You know, it's just, it's, it's, you know, throw the art of the canvas, whatever, you know, <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, that's cool. I, I never really thought about it that way that, I mean, art is art and, and people use the tools that they have available to make something unique to themselves. It's the human spirit, you know, whether it be banging two rocks together or taking that rock and drawing on a cave wall or being Jimi Hendrix. It's just, just one long, you know, line of beautiful humanity. Uh, and, and kind of what I love about that idea and, and this, I always kind of come back when when I uh, see these extravagant hi-fi systems and all that stuff, to me, it kind of comes back to the, the music is the centerpiece for me anyways. Like I, I love music. Uh, I, I can't play music and listening to music. I I've had my mind opened now that I get to play around and hear all these like really nice hi-fi systems and stuff. Um, but truthfully it's the music Without the music, you would never have a hi-fi system. Now, hi-fi systems can help give you a little bit more um, experience with that. Um, but at the end of the day, for me at least, it's the music that, uh, that kind of draws me into uh, kind of chasing uh, a little bit more and a little bit better for the, the systems to reproduce that feeling. Yeah, and I think it 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 uh, it works at both ends of the equation as well. Uh, I mean, I I am a terrible musician. I, I I studied drums at one point in my life. I I actually studied drums at two points in my life. I have I have, you know, hacked away at guitar for for years and years. My my playing should not leave my 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 room by any means. But I do know enough about you know instruments. Is is that you know the better the instrument you play, the more likely you are going to sound good, sound musical. You know, yeah. um, you know, my current guitar sounds a heck of a lot more musical than the crappy guitar I had in high school. You know, when I've had the the, the nice opportunity to sit down at a really good set of drums they sound more musical than the terrible set of drums I tried to learn on when I was 14. <laughs> you know, yeah. there is a, there is a certain, and, I, and that is where the artistry comes in. The great artist can make beautiful music on any piece of equipment. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, a, a famous story that my friend, the saxophonist Jane Bennett tells of the very first time she went to Cuba years and years ago. And, uh, you know, she went into a, a conservatory, you know, a typical Cuban conservatory where they were, they were using the, the Russian method, very strict learning. And there was a, a young man who had this, this clarinet or, or, or maybe it was a, uh, a saxophone. And, um, uh, uh, Jane, Jane tried to get uh, a note out of it and she couldn't, I mean, it was held together with rubber bands and had some scotch, <laughs> scotch tape on it. And, and yet this musician could play beautifully on on this instrument and you know it was it was terrible but he could still he could still make fantastic music on it and i've i've never forgotten that you know it's um again it's not the it's 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 the human behind the art that yeah. has to be there you know for whatever we hear or see at the other end i absolutely love that and i i think it kind of brings it back um 
for why like music is so interesting to me or hi-fi is so interesting to me uh it's the artists at the end of the day and it's the the music and the emotions that it makes you feel so my last question for you before i let you go when you're not reviewing music or you're not working what is the soundtrack to your life what do you put on when you just want to sit back and just enjoy music Oh, it just depends on the, on the time of day and the, and the frame of mind. Um, my tastes run pretty wide. Uh, just about the only thing I don't listen to is is opera, and I I, I probably should do do that as well. I mean, um, you know, I was listening to some some classical cello music this morning. Uh, it it really just depends on 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 the mood that strikes me uh you know i still love to put on the second stooges record from 1970 nice. which is which is about as primal as you get for rock and roll and and, and i might go from that to, to charles mingus some people can't see that that gap um intellectually uh and i credit my father with this a lot uh growing up uh he had incredibly catholic taste he would listen to anything and play anything on a Sunday. You know, we would start off with Benny Goodman. We'd end up with Gene Vincent. He taught me that all music was was worthwhile and and was was worth what you could take from it. And uh, that's kind of, you know, been the foundation of, of the way I listen to music. It's all art uh, as long as it's it's, uh, it's well-intentioned art. I've got time for it. I love that. James, in closing, uh, how can people track down your art and tech column uh, or find out more about you and the other things that you're up to these days? Yeah, well, I'm on Art and Tech uh, on our uh, on our network uh, once a month. Uh, comes out first day of the month, and uh, I'm in I'm in Downbeat um, most every second month. I'm in uh, in the, uh, the the sort of the, the feature review section at the back. It's called the, at the front. It's called the Hot Box. It's been an institution since the '30s, I think, where um, you know four critics take four different brand new albums and uh, and write about them, listen to them critically. So uh, yeah, you can find me in Downbeat as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining us today and uh, all the best. Been a pleasure. Thanks a lot.